language is the key to identity, heritage, and cultural preservation. It's the doorway between tradition and progress. It's our connection to who we are. So it's very important for kids to feel rooted, to feel they have an identity, to know who they are. Yani in a global world where we're becoming global citizens, what makes you unique and what makes you who you are? It's your identity and language is part of your identity. So that's why I believe it's something we need to focus on. That was the voice of Rama Kayeli, co-founder and CEO of Little Thinking Minds. I am your host, Ali Zweil, and this is the Startups Arabia podcast, where you learn about the Arab startups ecosystem from the best founders, investors, and operators in the region. Rama Kayeli is CEO and co-founder of Little Thinking Minds, an award-winning edtech company with a mission to close Arabic language literacy gaps. Little Thinking Minds creates digital learning platforms that are used by schools to aid in Arabic teaching. Currently, Little Thinking Minds platforms are used by half a million students in 800 schools in 10 countries in the MENA region uh, in private and public schools. They also cater to schools in refugee communities. They're targeting over 100 million children in MENA and over 100 million globally as part of their vision. They've won so many awards and accolades uh, including in 2019 winning the Queen Rania Award for Education and Entrepreneurship, uh, winning MIT Solve Global Competition 2022, getting the Innovation Award from the Saudi e-learning center last year. Rama is an Eisenhower Fellow and Endeavor Entrepreneur and winner of the Arab Women's Award. Enjoy this wide-ranging discussion with Rama. This episode is sponsored by the venture capital firm Endure Capital. Endure Capital invests in early stage companies that will achieve incredible impact. If you're a founder that fits this criterion, contact the Endure Capital team on www.endurecap.com. That's EndureCap, E-N-D-U-R-E-C-A-P. Or just click on the link in the show notes. Thank you to our sponsors for making this show possible. And now, back to the show. Welcome to the Startups Arabia podcast. My guest today is Rama Kayeli, the CEO and co-founder of Little Thinking Minds. I'm very happy to uh, have her on the show today. She's someone who's delivering on a mission that is dear to so many people, and she's affected the lives of so many kids and she's uh, uh, and parents. And she's won accolades from you know so many places, you know, in Jordan, in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia, uh, etc. Uh, I can't wait to hear her story. Uh, welcome, Rama. Thank you, Ali, for having me. Thank you. Um, so maybe we can start if you just tell us how you came to join the wonderful world of startups and, and start Little Thinking Minds. What was the story there? So the story uh, began, I studied filmmaking, so I have nothing to do with entrepreneurship. Uh, I wanted to tell stories coming out from the Arab world. But what happened uh, when I had my firstborn son, I was very frustrated by uh, how much he was surrounded with English language content. So his favorite stories were in English. His favorite songs were in English. At his nursery, he learned the English alphabet before the Arabic one. And it made me very frustrated and very curious. You know, why in a region that has such a rich Arabic language, are we all you know, gravitating towards English and speaking in English? And I felt there was something that I can do about it. I also then, um, my good friend Lemia was living in London at the time, and she was also sharing with me frustration. She was observing that, you know, mothers uh, from Japan, France, Germany, they all spoke fluently to their kids in their mother tongue. They had access to so much cool content in their own language, and the kids went from English to their own language. But Arab kids, we struggled. And this was a, yani, and when we were talking about it, we thought, okay, this is a London thing. And then we thought it was a Amman thing. We started to ask moms in the region. We asked moms from Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt, Lebanon, and we realized that it was a common pain, especially with the yani, mushrooming of private schools and everybody gravitating towards learning in English. So we thought, okay, we need to do something about it. So we said, let's start creating movies for kids. 
that reflected our culture, our language, and, and have them engage in the, in the language. We created a movie about animals. We filmed, you know, animals from Elbia, from the environment we're in, camels, sheep, you know, the animals the kids see. Um, we filmed in our backyards. We had the kids come. We had primitive cameras. We worked with local animators and volunteers, and we created the first movie. And we thought, okay, uh, let's release a take in the theater for fun. We told some friends and family, and we thought we'll have a cozy gathering of 50 people. We ended up having 300 people show up. And that's when we knew we were onto something. I and mean, we were solving a deep pain. Uh, and Little Thinking Minds was born. And we made it our mission to work on improving language uh, fluency and language and Arabic language literacy in the region. And that was like, you made the decision on that very first day? Or was it a gradual thing? We, and we made the decision to start a company that works on creating uh, video content for kids. And this was before the age of content creation and social media. And you're talking even 20 years ago and our first release our, our our first release was on vhs tape believe it or not so this this was this was, this was our first release and then and then you know as technology evolved we evolved too we, we then went on to create dvds which we were distributing in the region and virgin megastores and we you know we, we faced many challenges when it came to shipping and licenses and logistics but the most important problem we faced was piracy. Our DVDs were being sold for $1 in Egypt, Lebanon, and Jordan. And in a way, we were flattered. In a wow, these moms really love our content. They want to buy our content. And they're making them, you know, in the black market. But at the same time, we weren't a sustainable business. And so we had to pivot. And that's when we joined um, an incubator in Jordan called Oasis 500. You know, that's when we thought, okay, either we close down this company because, us, this DVD business is not working. We cannot scale this. There is lots of piracy. The costs are prohibitive, as you, you know, with logistics and stuff. And so we thought, okay, why not turn this into a digital business? But because we had no background really in business as such and in entrepreneurship, and that was the beginning of the entrepreneurship craze in the globally and in the region, Oasis 500 in Jordan was one of the first business incubators and accelerators in the Middle East, actually, modeled after yep. 500, 500 startups. So we were one of their first cohorts. And we went through, you know, the boot camp. We were like, La, investors, are they going to own a chunk of our company? And who do they think they are? You know, we had all those uh, limiting beliefs, let's say. But then we thought, you know, why not? Let's take a risk. And that's what entrepreneurs do. They, they kind of throw themselves into the fire. So we said, we're going to go in. We have nothing to lose. And we learned about business modeling, building financial projections, you know, how to marketing, growth hacking, all of that. And we started to create apps for parents. You know, we thought, okay, let's forget the DVDs and create apps for parents. And so we... we mobile we apps. Mobile apps and B2C. So we were a B2C business focused on parents. We raised funds from angel investors and we had our first seed round. We started creating apps for parents. Taban, we failed miserably. We were so bad. And... We had no money. We were going to shut down the company. We couldn't pay salaries. But, but we knew we were onto something because we had 40 million views on YouTube. So we said, okay, we know we're solving a problem. There's a problem when it comes to Arabic language and Arabic content. But the DVDs didn't work. The apps for parents didn't work. But we have to find a way to crack this. And as our kids grew and, you know, they, they went, you know, they were reading in English. They had exposure to all these amazing platforms in English, we thought, why aren't there any Arabic language platforms in schools? So we pivoted again and we started to create platforms for schools and we became a B2B company. Um, we applied for, um, we thought, okay, let's create, just like these English platforms that our kids are using, let's create an Arabic platform. What made us really think about innovation and what is innovation? You know, People think innovation is inventing something new, but sometimes innovation is drawing inspiration from what exists. And we were inspired by these you know, amazing platforms in English, and these reading apps in English, and we thought we need to take what we see, contextualize it, make it relevant to our region. We, we, we spoke to different award-winning publishers from the Arab world, from Egypt to Lebanon, to Palestine, to Jordan, to the UAE, to KSA, and we had all these books that we put under one umbrella, and we launched a pilot. Um, we, we, we launched a pilot in, in private schools and public schools in Jordan. Um, 
and we ran a, a business experiment, especially in public schools in Jordan. We worked through, we were, we applied to an award, a grand challenge called All Children Reading, focused on innovation and literacy. And uh, we won. We were one of 12 global winners, and we implemented the pilot in 20 public schools in Jordan. We offered an, a reading application that had 50 books to 20 schools. Half the kids had access to a reading program, and half the schools didn't. Half the students didn't. Kids read twice a week. Within three months, they finished 50 books. And mind you, at the time, there was a floating study that said that an Arab child reads 6 to 15 minutes a year compared to 18,000 minutes in the West. And that an Arab child reads one book a year of non-textbook material. And in these public schools, the kids would take out one book a year from the library, which were very uh, modest libraries at the time. And so the kids finished 50 books in three months. And so we had to then write and upload 50 more books. And within three months, they finished them again. And then we had to upload another 50 books. So on average, the kids read 100 books in that school year. And their literacy and their reading results were significant. Through this grand challenge for development, we had to work with an impact evaluation company from San Francisco. And they did a study comparing treatment and control. And there was a 30% improvement in reading outcomes. And that's when, you know, we thought we knew that, you know, this is the way, this is one way, of course, we can't do this alone. This is one way of cracking the reading challenge we have in the region. And as a result of this success, UNICEF adopted this program. And then we implemented this with 15,000 students, refugees, Syrian refugee students, and low-income students in Jordan. And we created books that focused specifically, because that was their specific mandate, focused specifically on social cohesion, tolerance, gender equality, and inclusivity. And the, the results were so uh, positive that now the Minister for Jordan wants to uh, scale this uh, nationwide. So, so this is how we kind of, I mean, it's a long answer to your short question, our beginnings. But we began creating video content. We pivoted to creating apps for parents, and then we pivoted to creating apps for schools. And, and then we, we scaled to where we are today, reaching public school students and private school students in the region. And we reach half a million students today. Wow. Okay, so, I mean, you first start with video, and that doesn't work uh, because of different logistical reasons. And then you pivot to apps. And that sounds very reasonable because there are, like, apps out there. And that doesn't work, you know. Uh, uh, even though you have a lot of views on YouTube, which means that somebody's consuming the, you know, wants to consume this content. Uh, and then you pivot to, I guess, B2B slash B2 government, B2G for the public schools. And uh, I guess that's where you are now. Why didn't you just give up when the apps didn't work? Um, what made you think, I mean, what was the process through which you pivoted? How did you find this new market? You basically created reinvented uh, that original app product into a web-based one that could be sold in a subscription type of model, I guess, for B2B, right? So, I mean, how did you make that transition? How did this decision make? And, and what did you feel during this period? Come on, we were, yani, we were terrified because, you know, when, you, when you're married to the idea, you think, Kalas, this is the way it's going to work. And then suddenly you're, you're saying, oh, no, this is not working. It's a mindset, and you need to change your whole mindset. Um, so, of course, we were scared. It was a risk. But, again, this is part of being an entrepreneur. You have to take risks. Um, wh wh why did we pivot? I mean, again, wh and why, did we, why didn't we close down the company? Uh, we thought about it so many times. I mean, we, really, literally, we, had, we couldn't pay salaries. We, we were really in a very bad place, and, we, and it was very difficult to fundraise also. Um, again, I mean, education is not a very sexy space to, to invest in. There are not that many impact investors in the region. Uh, it's slow growing. It needs patient capital. So it's not easy to have people believe in what you're doing and in your mission. So that was another frustration. So, I mean, we thought about it. But then when we found this, this grant that we applied for in the U.S. and we won it, Yani, this gave us. This was the catalyst for us to take this, to take our experiment, what we had in mind, like our let's say proof of concept, and run with it. And we launched it in the private, in the public schools in Jordan. And and because of the success of the impact evaluation, we're like, okay, this is it. This is working. This is actually improving Arabic. 
kids love it, kids are reading, and this is what we need to do. So then we started to pilot it in Dubai because our large, you know, the largest market globally, not even regionally, globally of international private schools is in Dubai, per capita, yani. And Lemia, my co-founder and partner, was living in Dubai. So and and they and they suffered the most from this problem because of the expats living in Dubai. A lot of Arabs live there, but they don't speak Arabic. So uh, and Arabic is compulsory. So we ran a pilot in Dubai, and we because there are similar products, math. English, science, Arabic was the natural, was, well, it was the natural, you know, continuation of that. And so schools subscribed. You know, they're very forward thinking. They're very technically advanced. They have good internet penetration. They have, they, they have computer labs in schools. So they were very receptive to the idea. And as we saw it succeeding in Dubai, we started to, you know, that's when we fundraised our Series A, because now we had a successful business. We were able to find investors who believed in our mission, and we were able then to 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 grow the company, grow the team, uh, grow the content. Um, now we're a team of sixty in four countries, and we were able to scale. Um, and our biggest markets today are UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar because, uh, yani, again, lots of international schools, very tech, technology technology enabled. But I have to say, you know, after COVID, also. The reception to online platforms and hybrid learning also helped us, yani, help more schools accelerate. become exactly accelerate our growth. And so now, um, alhamdulillah, yani, we're growing not only in the GCC but in the in the MENA region overall. Yeah, but it's kind of it was a great timing to raise a Series A in 2019, just before COVID hit. So you have kind of the the fuel to be able to to accelerate like that and, and keep up with the growth. So uh, very happy for you. Um, and, and now, as I understand it, it's a subscription-based business model. So it's kind of like a subscription per kid or something or number of students. Is that the business model you started with? Or did you start when you went to schools in a different model and then you went to subscription? Yeah, it was always subscription because we looked at what schools are used to. This is how right. they, they use their English platforms, their math platforms. It's always subscription-based. But when we work with government product projects, so we're, yeah, we're also we work with the Jordanian Ministry of Education. We were also adopted by the Qatari Ministry of Education, and they're using our platforms as an Arabic resource, not only as an Arabic language tool, but as a resource. So if you want to do research about the climate change, you use our platform to find books about climate change. Um, so, but th- th- these more are sometimes project based, sometimes subscription. It depends on you know the, the duration, the scope. So, but it was always, I mean, subscription is what works in school contexts and with students. So it makes sense. Got it. And economically, it's a good model, I think. It is. It is. Yes. Because it's, yeah, it's recurring. But yani, there's always, um, it's an annual subscription versus monthly. Uh, yeah, makes sense. And schools always have limited budgets. So it doesn't mean, yani, you know, there, there's lots of haggling that goes, that goes on. Yeah, um, yeah. But 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 there's also it, it's it, what has been let's say refreshing is that schools are becoming more and more aware of the importance of focusing on Arabic and they're realizing that children's Arabic is becoming weaker and weaker and we need to do quickly intervention like we need to quickly intervene to change this before it becomes too late. Couldn't agree more. Um, and Rama, your I mean your background was in journalism and filmmaking and you know things of that sort. And then now you're a full-time entrepreneur. So, I mean, are there commonalities between these two career paths? How did you make that transition? Um, I think the common theme is, and when I decided to study journalism and then filmmaking, I wanted to tell stories coming from the Arab world. I felt, first of all, I was a very proud Arab. And I felt that there were lots of stories that were untold um, and there was lots that even us, we don't know about the Arab world. We don't know about each other. Like we're, we're very in our own bubbles. And so I, I felt like there needs to be a way to tell these stories. And now with this platform, um, our goal is also to show a child in, let's say, Iraq, what the child in Egypt thinks. So we make sure to have books from Egypt. And one day, inshallah, we'll have books from Iraq. And we want a child from Palestine to have access to books from Morocco. So we want we want to like kind of 
promote this pan-Arabism feeling uh, because we all speak the same language. We all have a shared, cult- shared culture and shared history. And it's important that we know about each other. Um, so I think this is, and we are tell, it's still, and our platforms are full of stories and I always wanted to tell stories and I always wanted to kind of shed light on the region. So now we're shedding, we're helping kids understand the region better. Um, we also make it a point on our platform to focus on themes like inclusivity, gender equality, social development goals, climate change, because we want to have responsible global citizens and we want them to have ownership, you know, and to know that they can make a change. So yani, we try also as much as we can to, um, to, to to expose kids to so many themes in our mother tongue, to know that they can make a change. We show role models from the Arab world. So people like Muhammad Salah or, or Yusra Mardini, the, the Syrian swimmer who saved the, the refugees when they were swimming. So, you know, th- there are so many beautiful stories that we can share. We also have music, poetry, videos. So it's it's to for different learners because p- kids learn differently. But to have a variety of di- adaptive content for kids to learn in their language about the Arab world. Got it. And yeah, I mean, uh, and you know, founders are storytellers tellers all the time, aren't they? I mean, they're they're telling stories to their employees. They're telling stories to their investors. They're telling stories to the market. So there's always this other like storytelling element. Uh, sure. I think, yeah. So, uh, so I guess, you know, I mean, at the beginning, this storytelling skill was very key for getting little thinking minds off the ground because you were creating content and, and, and pushing it. But more and more, I'm guessing that as you've, you, uh, progressed as the CEO, you, you're, you're spending less and less time storytelling and there are other skills that you have had to pick up. Can you tell me more about that transition and, and what skills you needed at different times of the company and how you grew into this role, so to speak, because we all have that kind of growth trajectory. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Akid, Akid, at many points there was imposter syndrome because I felt, you know, okay, I'm a filmmaker. What am I doing running a business? Right. And, uh, and like, there's so many, skills I didn't have or, or training I didn't get. So, you know, especially in finance and financials and marketing. But I believe like running a company is an accelerated MBA. And so, and sometimes you learn much better on the job doing practical experience and you learn more from your mistakes than you do learning theoretically in a classroom. So, uh, yani, there are skills I feel I lack, but I feel like I learned quickly. I, um, yani, I, I, I utilized and milked the power of mentorship. Um, I milked my friends who are CEOs. So, you know, through being on this journey, you know, I'm, I'm part of different organizations. So I've, I have lots of friends who are also CEOs. And we learn actually more from each other than we even do from our mentors because we're kind of always in the same boat and we're always trying to find creative solutions to problems we face and challenges we face. So we help each other a lot. Um, and and also I surround myself with people sometimes smart yeah sometimes a kid smarter than me. So whatever I lack, my blind spots, I have people who fill those gaps. So Matalan, we're a technology company, but I'm not a technical person. I have an amazing tech team. We build products. I'm not a product person. I have an amazing product department. So it it's 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 about surrounding yourselves it's yourself with the right people, the right team, the right mentors, and always being open to learning. And to learning from failure, like not to take failure as the end, but to take it, okay, a door closes, there's another window somewhere that's going to open. As long as you believe in what you're doing and you have that passion and grit and like if you're tenacious, you get it done. But you have to have that drive in you to keep going and to battle your insecurities and your limiting beliefs. Yeah. And... um... There's this, I mean, I, I, I'd like to kind of double click on the quality of your team because um, I know I was like doing research for the episode and uh, I read the application for MIT Leap. Uh, it's online, it's available online. And I thought, wow, this is like so well done. Uh, um, I, you know, and I know that this was one of your team members. I thought, I mean, you must have a great recruiting uh, style that that you uh, do. So, I mean, w- how do you look for team members, and what what do you do? What do you ask them to 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 figure out if they're the right fit for your little thinking mind? 
I think one of the most important thing, things that our, yani our team members need to believe in our mission. So it's not just about the salary. It's not just about the flexible working hours. It's not just about, you know, um, the, 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 the company culture. But it's also about um, believing in the mission. And I, and I think I would say 100% everybody here believes in what we're doing. Because they also, many of them are parents, and they see the problem, and they face it themselves. Um, I think the other thing is because we're building cool stuff, so we're going into personalization and adaptive learning and AI. So also everybody's excited about the new phase of you know where we're going and where we're heading. So I think also there's that excitement. So it's also getting them to believe not only in what the mission is, but where we are going with our mission and with our reach and our impact. Taban company culture is very important. We are 60% female in a country that has only 15% employability of women. So Kamani, we, we are very much, we have flexible working hours. Our company culture is very positive. If I think all these things together, together help us, you know, attract uh, good people and maintain them. Got it. And okay, I'll, I'll take uh, a thread from what you mentioned, which is the, the AI part. And, um, you know, everybody's talking about what will generative AI mean for education? Uh, they're talking about potentially every kid will have their own personalized tutor and this tutor will, you know, uh, understand their learning, uh, type and, uh, and cater to that and, and adapt content as it goes to them and generate content, even maybe generate stories, uh, all that. How, how are you guys thinking of this? And are you uh, riding, like jumping on this bandwagon or are you thinking, you know, what, we have our own AI-based thing and, you know, generative AI is not there or is it something else? No, of course, Yanni, we are. You know, actually, let's remember, Arabic is a language that kids find difficult. Um, because of the idea of accents and the fact that there's only 60% overlap between spoken Arabic and written Arabic, so it's as if kids are learning another language. There is a lot of, yani, children are resistant to learning in Arabic. So we need to make the content itself very appealing. So one way of doing it is personalizing the content. So if you're a child who likes horses and likes books about horses, you know, we need to find a way to have more content about horses to cater to your interests. Um, if you're a child who learns more through video than through books, we need to have a way to have more video content for that age group. So to do that, we need a lot of content. And Gen AI is one way of, of, of you know, churning out lots of content to have these personalized and adaptive platforms for students. Um, also, also, it's important, Yanni, in terms of uh, command adaptation. So not just personalization, but adaptation. So sometimes the same book or story in the classroom it's difficult. You know, some child might find it easy because they're avid readers and others are going to find it hard because they're struggling readers. So you want to have different texts and, and more simple texts or complex depending on the on the level of the child. So also with Jenny I, you can have, you know, more customization of what's written. Um, and then with AI in general, I mean, we have millions of recordings. We record children's voices. They record their voices. So we need to have more text-to-speech and speech-to-text like uh, language learning models for kids, for kids' voices, because they're different than adult voices. So there's a lot that can be done. So yeah, I mean, there's lots of different avenues we're exploring. But yes, having a personalized tutor, definitely that's something we are exploring because every child learns differently and every child struggles differently with Arabic. Some people, it's the qawaid. Some people, it's the, which is the grammar. Some people, it's the comprehension. Some people, it's the, you know, you know like the, the pronunciation. pronunciation. Exactly. So, so, of course, this would the more personalized platforms are, the better the learning outcomes will be. And so we are also looking into how to employ AI to deliver better solutions to students. And are your customers asking for it yet or still or are you kind of trying to stay ahead of their requests? Uh, both. Some do, some don't, but there is definitely a much, there's much more awareness. Governments even are much more aware and they, they ask, like, what are your plans when it comes to AI, even like VR, AR, you know, where are you going with that? Um, so, so yeah, with, with the hype, also clients are more receptive and more excited 
because at the end their ultimate aim is for their students to improve they don't just want they don't just want to tick a box oh, i have an arabic platform no they want to make sure because especially in many schools there there are governing bodies there are certification bodies and part of the certification or accreditation is that they have to get good scores in all subjects science english and arabic arabic is becoming important in accreditation and so schools now want to make sure that I don't just want a platform with books. I want a platform that actually works, that's scientifically proven, that that shows me that the learning outcomes are improving. And this is what we are obsessed with as a company. Like this is what our innovation focus on, focuses on. How can we make sure kids spend more time on the platform? How can we make sure kids are enjoying the learning that's happening on the platform? How can we make sure that the content itself appeals to all tastes? And how can we show this to teachers and parents? These are the improvements, and this is how we're measuring the improvements. So AI is one way to do that, and there's a big push from clients and from us to go there. Great. And, and there is like a technology aspect to innovation, and then there's a market expansion kind of aspect, which is, and you guys, you have so many potential ways to expand. You can take it to B2C in the diaspora for, for people who want to teach their kids Arabic in the West or, or wherever they are. Or you could uh, take it from Arabic and add new subjects, but go to the same schools with, with also math and science and all that. Are you um, at this moment like thinking of these things and how do you approach this and uh, what are your plans for the future? I want to see, we get this, asked this question a lot. And uh, you're, you're doing Arabic, Arabic, what about math? What about, you know, you're doing literacy, what about numeracy? You're doing this, what about that? To be honest, we don't feel we exhausted uh, Arabic. We still feel there's a lot of room for growth and there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And so we don't want to distract ourselves with you know, venturing into other subjects. We want to focus on what we do well and grow that and do it even better. Um, and we toyed a lot with the idea of... Um, and what, what we did is we built on the Arabic. So besides having a platform for Arabic speakers, we also have a platform for non-native speakers. We also have a platform for KG learners. We also have a benchmark assessment platform that benchmarks kids beginning, middle, and end of year and measures their improvement. And now we're working on a platform for Islamic studies because a lot of schools say, okay, uh, you know, most of Arabic teachers also teach Islamic studies and we want Islam that's focused on uh, like a moderate, um, you know, uh, curriculum that's focused on tolerance, stories, uh, morals, values, etc. And there's a need for that. So this is what we're focusing on within the realm of Arabic language. There's more we can do with writing. There's more we can do with speaking. There's still so much that we can do. Um, we And we also toyed around with the idea of B2C. And B2C, I mean, that's a whole other any conversation because Awadishi, the Arabs in diaspora, don't necessarily want what we are teaching. What we provide are curriculum-aligned platforms. They're supplementary platforms. They're supplementary to the Manaj, the curriculum. But they are curriculum-aligned. And they are in Fusha. Uh, the Arabs in diaspora want Arabic in Ammiya. So, so, and yes, you can use AI to have platforms in different accents. So you can choose, I want a Moroccan accent. I want a Lebanese accent. I want a Yemeni accent. You can do that. You know that that's something to consider, um, but it's a different. It's a different. Even the product itself is different, and they always tell you the DNA of a B two B company is different than the DNA of a B two C company, and and the structure. Yeah, you need a different app. You need more marketing, performance marketing. It, it's as if you're building another company. It's always and it's a thin line between you know saying oh yes yes we have an app that works in the B two B space in the Arab world. Let's take it and scale it. You know to the globe. No, it doesn't work like that. And we did some business experiments, and that's how we learned. We learned the hard way, and what we have doesn't necessarily work for a B2C audience. Is this something we are toying with in the future? For sure. For sure, there's a huge opportunity. And there's a huge opportunity in Southeast Asia. You have millions of Arab, of Muslims who learn Arabic for the Quran, and, and there's a market there. So, you know, there's yani, we have lots of plants scaling in the region, Scaling in Southeast Asia and eventually the diaspora, maybe expanding in B two C, but we're taking it one step at a time. Yeah, I think I think it makes so much sense, and uh, I really can't emphasize enough what you 
how right you are in saying that B2C companies are very different from B2B. So the way the whole go-to-market uh, process is totally different. Uh, the culture almost of the place is different. So it's not as easy as it might seem. And it's very interesting, the insight that actually they don't even need the same product. It's a totally different product as well. So it's like uh, a whole other business unit, so to speak. Uh, really uh, cool. Right, Rama, uh, I want to ask you a question. Uh, why did you, why do you think learning Arabic is, is a problem that's worth solving? Why, why do you think it's, 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 it exists even, or it's something that needs to be solved? Arabic, يعني, learning our mother tongue is worth solving because يعني, science, science says that when you perfect your mother tongue, chances of you succeeding academically is much higher. When you're good in your own language, you succeed in other subjects. And we're talking about masses. So if you don't read Arabic well and you have you have math in Arabic and you can't read the question or understand it or in geography or social studies, etc., then you're not going to do well academically. So when you speak your language well, chances are much higher you're going to do well academically. Also, when you speak your language well, chances are much higher it, it, you will learn another language with ease or easier. So it's a, it's a door to multilingualism. People who speak their language very well learn other languages with ease. And away from academics, language is the key to identity heritage, and cultural preservation. It's the doorway between tradition and progress. It's our connection to who we are. So it's very important for kids to feel rooted, to feel they have an identity, to know who they are. And in a global world where we're becoming global citizens, what makes you unique and what makes you who you are? It's your identity and language is part of your identity. So that's why I believe it's something we need to focus on. It's about the, you know, the poets and the writers and the art and everything that comes out of our region. And to understand it also, language has nuances. You need to understand the language and what it reflects and what it, and to read about it. It's a very important to, to know our language. Why does this language, why does this problem exist? There are so many reasons, but if I wanted to kind of take a simplify, I would say our issue, our language is deglossic, which means that our spoken and our written language are different. So, you know, there's Ami and there's Fusha, there's 22 accents. A child from Morocco will not understand a child from Iraq, for example, and vice versa. There's only 60% overlap between what we say and what we and what we speak. So in, in a way, a child is learning another language. Also, there's the colonial, you know, the effect of colonialism, which left its imprint on the region. And then there's the issue of, uh, you know, Arabic is the fifth most spoken language in the world, but it hasn't kept up when it comes to innovation, technology, and globalism. And unlike the golden ages of Islam, the, the, you know, the research publishing in science has gone down significantly. And as English became the language of globalism, there was a mushrooming of private schools, and there was large migration from public schools to private schools that focus on English language teaching. And so Arabic took a backseat. Add to that outdated curricula in Arabic. Hagatiani kids cannot relate to. They're so old school. Poor teaching methods. Limited budgets in the Arabic department compared to other departments. And then, and then don't forget the influence of social media, TikTok, Snapchat, Netflix, Apple Music, all in English. And all of these factors are contributing to the demise of the Arabic language. And so, I mean, I mean, we are part of, of the solution, but it takes a village. We cannot do it alone. You know, we are trying as passionate entrepreneurs and as a group of 60, you know, from different backgrounds, working in different fields, tech, product, content, sales, everything to, to do something. But it's not just us. It should be policymakers, writers, researchers, educators, parents, musicians. Every, there needs to be a lot more work done to promote this. And there's becoming more awareness, Saraha. And there's, there is, yani, we, we are, there's much more work being done today, but still we're far, we're far, far away. And you see it, Yani, even when you walk, let's say you travel to Dubai or you travel even in Egypt, I've seen it. Parents talk to their kids in English. They, they speak to them in English. You go to France, Japan, Germany, Spain, they all speak in their language. So why? They refuse. They feel like it's, it's, it's a downgrade to speak in English. Yani, so why, do, why are we so eager to speak in English? But it's also up to us as, as, as parents 
And I mean, English is the language of globalism, of technology, of innovation. Yes, no one is saying no. But it doesn't mean we forget our language. So it takes effort. It takes, we all need to do something about this. Yeah, I think that attitude is like a remnant as well of the colonialism and, and you know, being second-class citizens who only become first-class by speaking the language of the colon, colonizer, so to speak. And, and, and a lot of parents or most people actually, uh, even some, a lot of people in education don't realize that not speaking your mother tongue properly is a, like a, a constraint on your ability to, to advance in science and to create, you know, new things and do that, even though this is a scientific fact. Uh, so I, I think it's a very important thing as well as the, I just keep agree. I'm agreeing with everything. I guess you're, you know, as a as a connection to our culture, it's so important to understand. Again, it's the gateway to the culture. Without it, the gateway is closed. So how are you going to touch the culture? How are you going to reach it? You're not going to. Uh, you're just going to adapt uh, another culture, uh, adopt another culture that you get maybe through social media, etc. And and we need to remember, and and my 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 son studies abroad. And he, he wants to come back one day to the region. And so what is going to make him special? What's going to make him stand out? The fact that he speaks Arabic. What will distinguish him from another child from any other country applying to the same job in Dubai or Sardinia or anywhere? It's the fact that he speaks yep. his, his language. So yani, we shouldn't ignore that. And, and not speaking the language leads to lots of brain drain. When you feel disconnected from the language, you feel disconnected from the culture, you end up not coming back. And we all suffer collectively as a nation. So it's something we need to invest in. Oh, I remember, like, personally, I went to Tunis a couple of years ago to, also for our work for Irish Arabic. They were looking at adopting an Arabic program because they suffer, because they have Francophone. Their English is very fr- French-induced. They have a Darja, which, which is a, yani, yani, yeah, the local a dialect. Yep. Exactly. I couldn't understand them. They couldn't understand me. The only way we could converse was in Fusha. So it is also a way to bring uh, Arab countries together. So, yani. It, it's so important and we forget because we become cocooned and we keep focusing on globalism, globalism, globalism. But this is part of glo- this is part of us, like Arabism or Arab identity and what makes us unique. So and there are so many reasons why we need to stress you know, the importance of teaching our language. We don't have to all be mutanabbi, but speak it, understand it, yeah. read it. The famous poet. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The famous poet, mutanabbi, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree so much. Um, all right. So what's the story behind the name for Little Thinking Minds? I mean, it's an interesting choice. It's a pretty long name. Uh, so what's the story behind it? <laughs> it's not a very interesting story. Uh, so when we first started out, we were inspired by a series of videos our kids were exposed to called uh, Baby Einstein. And, uh, and these were like very simple videos that kids loved at the time in English. And, and that's when we first started out, we were creating Arabic videos. And what we wanted to do, يعني, so, that, so in Arabic, no, it, was, it was young minds. Yeah, yeah, young minds. Young minds. And we wanted to do young initially, thinkers. we wanted to do a video about Al-Mutanabbi, Al-Razi, Al-Khawarizmi. We wanted to do these like videos for kids about Arab thinkers because the, يعني, this was initially the idea, but then when we went to register the company, when we went to register the website, there was no youngminds.com. It was taken. So the, sec- the second best thing was Little Thinking Minds. But I know it's long, but actually it's 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 catchy. Like people remember it. Ah, oh, you're the little thinkers. Ah, oh, you're the little minds. Yeah, yes, it's long, but they remember. It's us. memorable. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, and and you've been CEO of Little Thinking Minds for like over fifteen years now. So how do you keep yourself like energized and, and motivated over these years? Yani Shuf, it's a journey. And really entrepreneurship is a journey. Um, I want to say I really believe in what we do. Yani I feel very blessed every day that I wake up and come to the office. I love my team. I love our mission. Um, I love the impact we're creating. And I see where we're going. And I'm very sold on that vision. Um, and, and if I die tomorrow, I will die a happy person because I know, no, at least we built something that inshallah will have impact. Um, and this is what keeps me motivated mostly. 
بس طبعا it doesn't mean it's all rainbows I mean there's there's lots of challenges along the way uh, I think it's mental health for an entrepreneur is very important so I work I work with business coaches I work with uh, different kinds of coaches to help me in the struggles I face it's a very lonely journey um, people always only see you know what you post on LinkedIn which is always you know the, the, the success stories and the news right. the, the good news But behind closed doors, there's always struggles. Um, and sometimes you think you're all alone. And I think I really learned the value of being part of a community. And so there's lots more communities in the region like EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, or Endeavor, or other organizations that cater to entrepreneurs. And it's important to sit and share. And to share because you realize that, ah, oh, you're not alone. You realize, ah, oh, okay, I'm not the only one who's you know, having cash flow issues. Or I'm not the only one who's finding it hard to fundraise. Uh, because sometimes yeah, I mean, you, you end up thinking, doubting yourself or thinking, okay, maybe I'm in the wrong place or this is not what I should be doing. So, yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's a journey. But what keeps me going is, is this, the, 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 I'm so sold on what we do. And I love the impact we're creating. Uh, and I think we can make a big difference in how Arabic is taught in the region. Yeah, uh, on the long run, I think having a great mission is has much more impact on on one's happiness and uh, you know uh, sustainability than many people think. I think um, so. I mean, yeah. Speaking of difficulty in fundraising, which you mentioned, like as you were speaking, uh, you know, you've taken venture capital kind of funds, which means that eventually these venture capitalists they want exits, and you know, exit options are not that easy. How, how are you thinking about that? Eventually, I mean, you only raised Series A so far, but you know, how are you approaching that? And I'm not sure if you're incorporated in Jordan or like in outside or whatever. Hello, investors. Our investors come in are from the region, so we have Egyptian investors, Egyptian VC, a Saudi VC, an Emirati US VC, and a Jordanian VC, and of course, angels. Usually the stipulation when these VCs come in is that they want us to be incorporated uh, offshore. So we are a BVI company. They, they, they worry about you know, local tax laws, etc. Yep. So, uh, so we're not incorporated in Jordan, but we have subsidiaries in the Arab world, in UAE, Sardinia, Jordan, and Egypt. Um, and, you know, I mean, we, 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 and what we, the way we see, and we see us becoming part of a larger education company. So an education company that wants to come into the region that already offer English, math, science, and they want to have an Arabic offering, we would be a perfect fit for that company. Or, or many education companies now, they want to come into the region because we, we يعني, Emirat and now Saudi are investing heavily in the education system. There's lots more privatization of schools. So, and, you know, we're, 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 big, we're large populations. Um, and so uh, the potential for growth and, and for growing their own products here is huge. But they, they would look at companies like us who have very good footprint in the region. We've mastered selling to schools. We have 800 schools in the region, private and public and refugee. So we work with all different sectors, all different segments. We have boots on the ground in the different markets we are in. We have very good relationships with the schools. Our retention rate is 80 to 85%. So it makes us very interesting for acquiries. So eventually we see ourselves being part of a larger education company that wants to scale into the region. Got it. And Rama, now thinking about like the regional startup ecosystem, if, if you had a magic wand that you could wave and, and change something about the regional ecosystem, what, what would it be? I think for us, because we are an impact-driven business, I would want more funding for impact, uh, like impact funding, impact investment. I think this is something that's very lacking from the region. Um, we've found really cool instruments from Europe, like impact-led financing and different instruments that you know, help entrepreneurs who look at double bottom line. So it's not just revenue, it's not just profit. It's also how much impact are you having? What change are you making? We need to all become responsible citizens. It's not just about making money and, you know, having flashy companies. It's about what change are we, it's happening on the ground and how are you contributing as a VC? So I, I definitely think there needs to be much more focus on impact-driven businesses. I do think there needs to be more focus also on women-led businesses. 
uh, like gender lens businesses, like gender lens, gender lens VCs, um, because women always also bring something new. They're always working on social problems. They're always working on problems that uh, يعني, uh, go far, let's say, in their solutions. And they have a different way of approaching, pro- uh, of approaching problems. Some even say a more creative way. So maybe we don't grow as big or we don't have the sexy numbers, but the impact we create and the, and the creativity in our solutions is definitely very felt. Um, so this is where I feel there is a lack when it comes to investment. Okay. Um, and yeah, speaking of women founders, I mean, you have a, a co-founder, obviously, uh, who is also a woman. Um, what's your advice on on choosing co-founders and, and maintaining relationships uh, through the good times and the bad, you know, with your co-founder? I, I have two co-founders, actually. When we first started out, it was me and Lamia. And then uh, seven years later, we were joined by another co-founder who was actually the investment officer at Oasis 500. But she really believed in what we did in our mission. And she came from a very strong finance background. And we were a great fit. We all got along very well. And so she was a natural addition to the team. Um, I think, you know, choosing your co-founder is so important. I think it's very important that you cover each other's blind spots. Um, I think your skill sets need to be different. So uh, you need to choose a co-founder who complements you and who doesn't duplicate what you do. I do think sometimes it helps to have, you know, male-female co-founder because sometimes, you know, different roles are needed for different conversations, let's say. Um, And I think having honest conversations are also very important. Um, It's, you know, it's not easy, you know, being a a sole founder. But it's also not easy having co-founders. That, that, that takes work. It's a relationship that needs to be, you know, worked on, invested in. Um, and so I think يعني, it's like marriage. They tell you that the person you choose to marry is one of the most important decisions you make in your life. And the person you choose as your co-founder is one of the most important decisions you make in your life. And actually, I think, I'm not sure what the statistic, the statistic is, but a huge number of startups fail because of co-founder issues. Um, so, yeah, it's a very important decision. But I think like having the same values, mindset, background, and making sure you cover each other's blind spots, these are the most important uh, things, I would say. And having being open to being vulnerable and having honest conversations without taking it personally, I think that's very important. Yeah, uh, incredibly important to be open. Otherwise, nothing, nothing will work. Um. Okay, and now maybe let's go to the investor side. So, what are the what are the best investors like? Okay, good question. They always say, investors always say that they invest in the founder, not necessarily the business. So they believe in you, um, and I think it's very important to always remind yourself. Because sometimes when you're not achieving your numbers or your KPIs, you tend to get disillusioned. But you need to remind yourself that, you know, they believe in me. Even if, you know, the plan we drew is not working, but, you know, and that helps a lot. And I I think the right investors also remind you. They give you the freedom and the space, but they also give you the reassurance that they're going to be there for you. They don't pressure you with, you know, you didn't achieve this and you didn't do that. They understand and they help you work on problems. They're available for you and present. So our investors, for example, like our board members, they make it to a point um, to have a call with me once a month. Like, how are you doing? What's going on? How can we support you? Where where do you need help? They never pressure us to uh, say, okay, you need to exit. You know, we have to go back to, you know, we have to, we have our own, you know, investors that we need to, you know, we need to exit your fund now. They, they always say, this is your decision, it's your company, we're here to support you, but it's it's you. And to give you that space, freedom, and confidence is so important. Um, and um, yeah, and, and, and I know from conversations with friends uh, who, who have had nightmare stories of their investors, you know, micromanaging, interfering, messaging them at night, being very aggressive in board meetings, holding them accountable to their KPIs, this doesn't work. This this suffocates you. As an entrepreneur, you need to have the freedom to experiment, to try things new, and to know that sometimes you're going to fail. And and it takes very mature, 
there is a level of maturity that board members need to have when they join your board and when they become investors to know that this is part of entrepreneurship. Not everything is going to go according to plan. It's a journey that is like this. And you kind of have to be there for the long run and to remember that you invested in this person and you trust this person to be able to figure it out. You are there to support them and not to suffocate them. Yeah, um, absolutely. And um, on the on the CEO side, like, how do you think, I mean, what's the best way to manage the board and, and to handle board meetings and prepare for them and, and make sure you get the most out of them? I think it's very important not to only, like when we first started out, when I first started out having a board, I was new to this and I only wanted to show the good things. But then I realized that these, I need, these guys are here to help me. I'm not, they're not my teachers. I'm not there to show them, you know, all the flashy, you know, all, you know, all the golds and not the guts. I, I forgot what the expression is, but anyway, like right. the gore, you know, all the gold, but yeah, no gold. So, so and then yani, it's important to realize that your board members are there to support you and they have experience because they sit on other boards and they man and they help you know, with other companies, they've seen other mistakes that have been done. They've helped companies come out of, you know, you know, trouble they were in. Uh, so it's important to learn also from their experience. It's important to listen. So not to be defensive. Um, and to accept, okay, that not to take it personal that this is, you know, they're criticizing me or they, no, it's constructive. They're, they're, they're there to support you, to help you work. So I think it's very important as a CEO to um, leverage the experience of the board members to your advantage. And I think it's very important in the board meetings is to highlight the important numbers. So revenue, churn, you know, there are certain metrics as a SaaS company you need to report on and you need to look at and go deep in if you feel there are, you know, problems with. But it's also important to, you know, to have honest discussions. You know, guys, I'm struggling in this area or this is not working out the way we thought. What do you think? What experience do you have? And and to, you know, hash it out. Taban, of course, it depends on your board. We are lucky because we are a cohesive board. And by cohesive, I don't mean we always, you know, we're all we all get along great. No, we do have, you know, tension, which is important to have this tension. If you don't have tension, then there's something wrong. There needs to be this back and forth. There needs to be challenge. Like we need to challenge each other and do sanity checks. But 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 it, but you know again depending on your board but if you have a board that you manage well that you manage the relationship well that you make sure that everybody gets you know respects each other are good listeners and are there with the same mission to help and empower you and help the company grow then it's important to have honest conversations and to show you know the good with the bad and to discuss challenges in an open way. Absolutely. Um, couldn't agree more. And and that's you know the only way to really get the benefit of the board. Um, and it's kind of, uh, I guess it, it brings me to another thing, which is, you know, CEOs are, are basically communicators. They're always communicating to their team, to their staff, you know, to their board members, investors, the public, uh, podcasts, things like that. And, um, when do you think, I mean, how do you think bad news should be, uh, spread? I mean. Uh, should everyone know about it? Should you control it? Is it like there are things people should know, people should know? I mean, how do you manage communication in general? What do you communicate to whom? And what are the best practices for that, in your opinion? I, I think it's a fine line because you don't want to demoralize the team and you don't want to, you want to come on and keep them motivated. Um, there's always going to be good news and bad news. This is natural. This is part of any business. Um, it's important to manage expectations. It's important not to keep people in the dark. You know, if there is, let's say, when COVID happened and let's say there are layoffs or there are salary cuts, it's important to be honest, I think, transparent with your team members. I think the more honest you are as a management team, um, the, the team appreciates it. They don't feel they were... Uh, deceived, let's say. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to be so honest that you demoralize and you demotivate. So I think it's a thin line and it's important to manage it carefully uh, when such situations happen. 
Yeah. And, it, and it's part of the pressure on founders, right? That's why we feel so lonely. Uh, because there's some news that we have to just keep for ourselves for the time being and, and solve with the team. All right. So 10 years from now, where do you see little thinking minds? 10? Five, ten. <laughs> Five, okay. Uh, I, I, I see little thinking minds in every school in the Middle East. I, I see little thinking minds reaching millions of students um, in the region. I also see it spreading beyond the region, so reaching uh, children all over the world globally and children in diaspora. Uh, and not only, and not only, our goal is not only reach. It's not only to reach the millions of, of students. Our goal is actually to to reach them because we're actually making a difference. There is impact. Arabic language is improving. Kids are comfortable speaking in their own mother tongue. They read fluently. They read with ease. They're proud of their language. They're connected more to their identity. There is more connection between children from the region. Um, they relate to one another. So, I mean, our ultimate dream and goal is to improve Arabic and and I suffer I went to an international school so even me when I want to read write you know a khitab in Arabic I, I suffer you know and I force myself to read Arabic books and I force myself to be in Arabic book clubs because I need to work on improving my skills and this because I'm a product of an international school and I, I my dream is for kids not to struggle like I struggle and to be very comfortable in their language to enjoy reading in their mother tongue and to and to to be proud of who they are and their language and their culture and ideally, ideally I, I also would like us to be the the application that people will pick up when they're learning Arabic for the first time so when they're looking for supplementary content books videos localized I mean people use Duolingo and it's great but if they want content that is from the region, contextualized, relatable, that they can read and learn from, then we want to be that go-to app for improving your Arabic language skills. Yeah, wonderful. And, and you know, I've seen how much research you guys do, like in pedagogical or, you know, teaching approaches and things like that. I mean, I think it's more advanced than an average Duolingo app. So uh, I'm going to wind down the interview now and go into the quick fire questions where I ask you a question. Just the first thing that pops to mind, uh, just let me know. Okay, so the first one is, uh, what book do you like to recommend to others? One book? Well, or book, two, three books. Um. I'm reading in Arabic, uh, The 40 Rules of Love, which I've read in English, but now I'm reading in Arabic, and it's one of my favorite books. And I also finished a very beautiful book called The Surrender Experiment. Cool. Um, how, do you, uh, how do you unwind and how do you stay like energized? What do you do to relax, basically? Uh, I spend time alone. Um, I... Uh, Exercise. I try to practice mindful techniques like yoga and meditation and journaling. Um, yeah, I think this is what I do mostly to preserve my mental health and to help me unwind. I play music. I think it's easy to forget yourself when you're an entrepreneur, um, yep. and, and and you know your your work becomes your life. Um, my kids now are grown, so my Son is at university and my daughter graduates this year, so I have more free time. And so I, what I'm trying to focus on more is just finding things that bring me joy. I think sometimes being an entrepreneur, you're stressed a lot. There's a lot of stress and your mind's always preoccupied. So I try to find things that take me out of my mind. So whether it's meditation, exercise, playing music, reading, walking, spending time alone, I just try to get out of my mind and just to be in the moment is hard but it's something you need to constantly work on to to stay balanced to stay balanced yeah you have to refill the battery or you know what questions should i have asked you that i didn't i think it's important to ask women how they balance between the different roles they have um and I, I think we don't see in a way, how much harder it is for women to be entrepreneurs when they're mothers and they're, you know, wives and daughters and there are responsibilities socially on them that are different. There are expectations on them that are different from men. Yeah. Um, 
as, as when I was fundraising, I was always asked weird questions like, are you planning to have more kids? You know, what are your office hours? And I know men don't get asked these questions. So I think it's important to, to highlight that. So, yeah, um, it is definitely an issue. The, or, or a challenge that, that is uh, uh, worth uh, going into and how people do it. Uh, but I know that you're traveling tomorrow and that we're out of time. So I'm not, I'm going to keep it for our next uh, recording to ask you how you do it. So if, if anybody wants to reach out to you for, for any business reason or something like that, wh- where's the best place to reach you? Uh, I guess on my email, uh, rama at littlethinkyminds.com or through LinkedIn. Cool. All right. Uh, I like to end, um, the episode on a note of gratitude. So I want to ask you, uh, what is a gift somebody has given you that has made a great impact on your life? (laughs) A gift someone gave me that made an impact on my life? I think my kids are a great gift to me. And they're also great teachers. Um, Teachers about life. And they teach me about myself. Um, And I think every time I failed... Every challenge I had, every mess up I messed up has also been a gift. Yeah, it's, it's a gift that life gave you in general. Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful note to end on. Uh, definitely kids are like such a beautiful gift. Um, and definitely the best are always the ones who, who keep learning from their mistakes and don't let them get them down. So. Thank you very much, Rama. And thank you for the gift of your time and your, uh, your wisdom. Uh, and hopefully we'll have you sometime again on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Startups Arabia podcast. If there was something you really liked about what the guests said today, reach out to them on social media and tell them what you liked. And of course, if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? You don't want to miss any of our great upcoming episodes. Also, please rate us and give us comments on our social media accounts so that we know how to improve. And also tell us what you like. We don't mind hearing that either. Until next time, this was your host, Ali's Whale.